Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July issue of Derm Surgery Digest. This is Michael Renzi, one of the hosts. This month, we'll, we will be making a format change to give some of the other hosts a well-deserved break. We are lucky enough to have Naomi Lawrence, a national expert in the field of both surgery and cosmetics, as our editor. So in this new format, which we're calling Journal Club, I will be presenting articles to Dr. Lawrence, who will provide her thoughts on the outcomes and takeaway points. Please feel free to let us know what you think of the new format in the comments section. We hope you enjoy it. So this month's issue opens with an editorial, What is in a Name? Implications of a Title Change from Physician Assistant to Physician Associate by first author Kathleen Spitz and senior author Travis Blaylock. I'd like to applaud the authors for taking on this controversial issue, an important one, as I think we need to better define the role of mid-level providers within dermatology. Dr. Lawrence, what are your thoughts on this issue? I agree with you. It's controversial. And in addition, I think, unfortunately, we haven't done a very good job in defining the scope of practice for mid-level providers in dermatology and defining what is appropriate oversight. So our first original investigation in this month's issue was complete margin assessment versus sectional assessment in surgically excised high-risk keratinocyte carcinomas, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Sophia Fraga and senior author Abigail Waldman. So this was a systematic review to compare recurrences of high-risk keratinocyte carcinomas undergoing excision using complete margin assessment, or CMA, or sectional assessment, also called SA in this article. High-risk keratinocyte carcinomas were defined as recurrent, having perineural invasion, or basal cell carcinomas with aggressive histology. Recurrence data were excluded from studies with median follow-up time of less than two years, or if it was unreported. 28 articles ultimately met eligibility criteria and were included for analysis. So the authors found that for all high-risk keratinocyte carcinomas, CMA was significantly superior to SA in reducing recurrence risk, as those treated with complete margin assessment had a 3.9% pooled recurrence risk compared with 13.5% for sectional assessment. Median time to recurrence after treatment for high-risk keratinocyte carcinomas was 56.8 months for SA and 23 months for CMA. Recurrent BCCs treated with CMA had significantly lower recurrence risk compared to those treated with SA. They also found that keratinocyte carcinomas with PNI had higher recurrence risk after SA compared with CMA, and this finding was even more pronounced in a sub-analysis looking at squamous cell carcinomas with perineural invasion. Dr. Lawrence, what were your takeaway points from this article? So just to add on to your observation about perineural invasion, nearly all of the cases with sectional assessment uh, received adjuvant radiotherapy compared to only half of the CMA case. And the recurrence rates were lower for CMA. So that shows a better use of medical resources. In summary, why is this article important? We still do not have Mohs surgery in the NCCN guidelines, and we need to substantiate that Mohs is superior to wide excision because outside of our specialty, this is not widely recognized. This article helps us towards that. Moving into the original investigation, perioperative anxiety associated with Mohs micrographic surgery, a survey-based study by first author Jun Long and senior author Kevin Nori. This was a cross-sectional study that aimed to identify risk factors that play a role in Mohs surgery-associated anxiety among patients with non-melanoma skin cancer. Patients who presented for Mohs at the University of Miami were given a questionnaire which included a self-rating anxiety scale and the dermatology life quality index prior to the start of their procedure. Demographic features were self-identified and the, the location of the cutaneous malignancy was also tracked. A total of 100 patients receiving MOS were recruited. The authors found a significant increase in perioperative anxiety associated with the eyelid area compared with non-eyelid facial areas and non-facial areas. 
adjusted model analysis demonstrate a higher odds ratio of above median anxiety in non-eyelid facial cases and a higher odds ratio of high anxiety in eyelid cases compared with the non-facial area. Patients with graduate degrees exhibited less anxiety compared with patients who received less education, and higher perioperative anxiety was associated with a greater impact on quality of life. Dr. Lawrence, were you surprised by any of these results, and is the study going to impact the way that you counsel your patients? So I'm not quite sure what to make of the education piece, because I've seen people who are highly educated uh, become very anxious, either because of the sort of uh, forward-facing job they have or because they don't like to lose control in any situation. Um, or I've seen people with very low health literacy become fearful because they worry sort of that the worst is going to happen, the big cancer word. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of that particular portion uh, of this. Um, otherwise, I think definitely people who have periocular lesions are more fearful of having something affect their sight. Between the two groups, no difference in the mean necrotic area, no difference in eyebrow symmetry, and no difference in complication rates. So Dr. Lawrence, what were some of your takeaway points from this article? So I guess one of the first things that I noticed is that uh, the two, two orientations for forehead flaps that they mention, most of us actually orient our forehead flap obliquely towards the deep side, deep side of the male pattern sort of recession that we see in many of our mature patients rather than straight vertically or with the 90 degree angle. But it was nice to see this. Um, I thought the authors did a really nice job of discussing the weaknesses of the study, that is that it was single surgeon, retrospective, no randomization, and they had a lack of control over factors that could be quite important, such as smoking. Um, some of my concerns were, um, of course, possibly beyond their control. There wasn't an objective scar scale they used. They used sort of a generic visual and analog scale. And I was unclear um, as to who did the rating. Uh, it just says an independent observer. Um, I also thought that certainly the trend in eyebrow asymmetry, um, sh there was a, a difference between the vertical and the 90 degree with the vertical being 6.2% and the 90 degree being 18.2. So that the study was somewhat underpowered to show uh, that being significant, but I think in a larger group, it would be a significant difference. The other thing that I, I would have liked to see is I would have liked to see the forehead scars, um, but I don't think the Raiders actually got to see them either. And I think that the quality of a forehead scar is important because most of our patients can't wear bangs over their scars. Um, and that quality of the scar and the eyebrow asymmetry would also play a role in the final result. Finally, they did show a 20% incidence of necrosis in both types of forehead flaps. And although that's a small, they talked about it just being in a small area, it would be important to know it, what that looked like, um, to know whether that would cause a significant depression, let's say in the leading edge of the flap, where it would be very noticeable. So very interesting art, article overall. Your takeaway, are you going to start uh, implementing the 90 degree flap in your practice? I think that I will think about it I more now because I think in short foreheads before I probably would have been reluctant but I would definitely warn somebody that they might have eyebrow asymmetry. The next original investigation was patients are willing and successful with home suture removal after most surgical procedures by first author Edward Seeger and senior author Thomas Hawker. The purpose of this prospective study was to recruit patients undergoing Mohs surgery to determine their baseline knowledge, comfort, and willingness to remove their sutures at home, assess their preferences for the type of educational materials provided to assist in the suture removal process, and their success with at-home suture removal. 
Before their MOSE procedure, consenting patients were provided with an initial survey questionnaire that asked for demographic information, history of self-suture removal, and perceived ability to remove sutures based on their current level of knowledge. Patients were then provided with two educational materials, first a one-minute video that detailed a real example suture removal after MOSE, and a handout with suture removal instructions and photographs. Patients who were willing to attempt removal were contacted after the expected suture removal date to verify success and assess their experience. The study enrolled 150 patients. After their MOSE procedure, 90.1% of participants were ultimately willing to attempt self-removal. Women and younger patients were more willing to attempt suture removal. And patients were more willing, more confident, and had lower anxiety with removal after viewing the educational resources. 97% of patients who were willing to attempt suture removal were successful. I thought this was an interesting study. That, however, one thing that did jump out to me was that they didn't comment on whether or not family or friends at home assisted in this suture removal process. And I think that's a, a key potential confounding variable that they should have addressed. Dr. Lawrence, did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I totally agree with that because certainly there are some locations like near an eyelid or on the nose where you would really need some assistance if you're removing them on yourself. I'm also curious as to what disposable kit they use, like what that was like. All the disposal kits that I've used, I wouldn't want to have to use on anyone, much less myself. Um, they're kind of clumsy and they don't do a great job. Um, Having said that, I, th I think that it does substantiate this practice as reasonable for remote areas or patients who, for travel concerns, can't return to your office. Um, in my practice, we use a lot of tissue glue and fast-absorbing gut, and we find the cosmesis excellent, as most studies have confirmed. Moving into the reconstructive conundrums, the first is revision repair of a collapsed external nasal valve by first author Julie Crowley and senior author Gilly Munavali. The authors presented a case of a 62-year-old woman who presented with collapse of the external nasal valve, as well as asymmetry and loss of the alar groove at six weeks following Mohs for an infiltrative basal cell carcinoma on the right nasal tip, which they had repaired with a nasalis sling flap. To revise this repair, a cartilage graft measuring 1.5 to 2 times the width of the defect was harvested from the right antihelix. A tunnel was then created under the healed nasal sling flap using a 15 blade. The cartilage was then carefully maneuvered into position within the tunnel and secured with monocryl. A small anterior portion of the alar groove was partially blunted by the original reconstruction so the authors used a CO2 laser to recreate this ALAR groove. If you're interested, the settings for the active FX handpiece can be found in the article. Dr. Lawrence, any takeaways from this reconstructive conundrum? Well, I, I would have liked to see the original defect, but I guess one comment is that that is a very distal location for this particular flap being an advancement flap, I would expect the perpendicular pull on the free margin to possibly cause this kind of trapdoor effect and push that valve in. And I think this is a very nice uh, revision um, that they did. It looks like it pulled it out very nicely. And I thought that was interesting. I'd never seen that method of recreation, the, recreating the ALR groove. So um, that was also uh, quite nice. The second reconstructive conundrum was repair of a total defect in the upper lateral and medial lip by first author Yajin Kui and senior author Chao Chi Lin. This was a case of a 57-year-old female who presented for the treatment of a defect in the upper lip due to a traumatic incident one year prior to presentation. On physical exam, there was a complete defect in her upper right lateral and medial lip, including the skin, lining, and vermilion. To reconstruct the defect, the authors performed a three-stage procedure in which they recreated the lateral lining of the upper lip with two flaps, a nasolabial rotation, and a triangular skin flap. In the second stage, the nasolabial flap was cut and then split into the cutaneous and lining parts. 
and then the medial upper lip and the vermilion were reconstructed with a modified Abbe flat, which was also taken down in the third stage. Dr. Lawrence, what did you think of this reconstruction? Well, certainly the authors provide an approach for reconstructing a large full thickness defect of an upper lip. But this submission would have really benefited from more pictures of the operative stages, a more detailed diagram, and a supplemental video. The final reconstructive conundrum was repair of a multi-subunit defect of the cheek, nose, and lip by Junkin Zhang and senior author Joseph Sabanko. The authors described the repair of a 5.2 by 7 centimeter defect involving the left medial cheek, left nasal sidewall, and left upper cutaneous lip following Mohs for an infiltrative basal cell carcinoma. The operative defect was split along cosmetic subunit boundaries and the reconstruction was completed using dual adjacent curved V to Y advancement flaps analogous to a double rainbow. The lower V to Y advancement flap was used to reconstruct the upper cutaneous lip with hair bearing skin with the leading tip of this flap used to repair the lateral ala. The upper V to Y advancement flap was used to reconstruct the cheek and lateral nasal sidewall. The curvilinear incisions of the flaps camouflaged within the vermilion cutaneous junction, mulolabial fold, and relaxed skin tension lines of the cheek. Dr. Lawrence, what did you think of this repair? This conundrum highlights the creative use of a common flap to reconstruct a large multi-subunit defect respecting the boundaries and differences of those subunits. In developing different flaps, there are more scar lines, but the surgeon maintains the distinct contour of the different subunits. The first communication in this month's issue is non-melanoma skin cancers treated with Mohs micrographic surgery in patients with HIV, a cross-sectional analysis by first author Daniel Lewis and senior author Jules Lipoff. This cross-sectional analysis aimed to evaluate the level of invasion, subclinical extension, recurrence rates, tumor staging for squamous cell carcinoma, and CD4 count of HIV-positive patients undergoing Mohs micrographic surgery for non-melanoma skin cancer. The authors performed a retrospective chart review of patients with HIV undergoing Mohs for non-melanoma skin cancer at the University of Pennsylvania Department of Dermatology over an eight-year period. CD4 count was classified as less than 200 or greater than or equal to 200 cells per milliliter and was assessed as the mean of all counts preceding the latest Mohs procedure. 10 of 61 patients included had a mean CD4 of less than 200. CD4 count of less than 200 was associated with markedly increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma. There was no difference in preoperative tumor size when stratified by CD4 count. CD4 of less than 200 was associated with a higher rate of recurrence from previous. However, no known recurrences were noted in either group after Mohs surgery with six years of follow-up. All tumors were cleared after Mohs surgery, although more stages were necessary in patients with a low CD4 count. There was ultimately no association with low CD4 count and increased tumor staging for squamous cell carcinomas. Dr. Lawrence, what were your takeaways from this communication? Well, I think one of the last things you mentioned, which is that a low CD4 count was associated with increased subclinical extension, is just something to keep in mind when you are treating this population. Next, we'll be reviewing Review of Mohs Surgeon's Intraoperative Anxiolytic pra Practices, a survey of the American College of Mohs Surgery by first author Deborah Paul and senior author Frankie Lambert-Smith. Since Mohs is performed under local anesthesia, the procedure can be very anxiety-provoking for many patients. In this study, an anonymous survey of 20 questions was distributed to all members of the American College of Mohs Surgery. A total of 142 surgeons completed the survey, which was an 8% response rate. There were a lot of interesting results to unpack here, but uh, of fo following are a few of the key points that I wanted to highlight. Of respondents, 107 report using pharmacologic anxiolytics. Most surgeons, 67%, report using pharmacologic anxiolytics in 5% of encounters, and only 5% of surgeons report using it in more than 10% of encounters. Those in academics were more likely to use anxiolytics. 
patient request at 81%, followed by physiologic signs of anxiety at 52%, were the most common reasons for administering medication. Most surgeons prescribe diazepam, followed by lorazepam. Dr. Lawrence, your thoughts on this paper? I was quite interested in it because this is the first year uh, where we have added the question to our preoperative consult because we had to cancel a couple of cases in which patients took either their own anxiolytic or somebody else's prescription before they came in, and I did not feel that we could get uh, capable consent from them. So uh, I think that it's an important issue that you probably should discuss with people and make sure that they sign their consent before they uh, take the anxiolytic. The next communication is disseminated intravascular coagulopathy after Mohs micrographic surgery as a presenting sign of prostate cancer by first author Jake Lazaroff and senior author Diana Bulletin. The authors present the case of a 91-year-old man with a history of atrial fibrillation on warfarin who was treated with Mohs for an invasive squamous cell carcinoma on the right medial nasolabial cheek. The defect was repaired with an uncomplicated layered linear closure. His postoperative course was complicated by bleeding and hematomas, which precipitated a laboratory workup revealing DIC. Subsequent imaging and PSA evaluation helped identify underlying stage four metastatic prostate cancer. Dr. Lawrence, what did you take away from this case report? I guess to me, the moral of the story is that if you have an unusual complication that occurs after surgery, consider that everything that occurs to a patient postoperatively is not necessarily due to the surgery. Consider other possibilities. Next, we have basal cell carcinoma of nasal vestibule with significant intranasal extension by first author Karen Arnaud and senior author Anna Clayton. This was a case report of a 68-year-old who presented for Mohs for a biopsy-proven basal neoplasm of the left nasal sill. The first stage of Mohs demonstrated histology consistent with an aggressive basal cell carcinoma, micronodular subtype, superiorly along the nasal mucosa. Due to concern for further extension into the superior nasal mucosa, Mohs was aborted and the patient was referred to ENC for resection. After three rounds of resection, the final defect included a moderate portion of the left left upper cutaneous lip, left cutaneous cheek, the nasal columella, the anterior nasal septum, and the lateral half of the lower lateral cartilage, as well as the ala. Dr. Lawrence, what did you take from this communication? So on one hand, it's a, it's a cautionary tale that we have to look carefully preoperatively at the surrounding tissue. Um, and we have found certainly that using a dermatoscope helps us to better delineate the margins of our tumors preoperatively. On the other hand, there are always going to be areas like in the conchal bowl going down the ear canal or on the nasal septum or even um, on the urethra, tracking down the urethra, where you won't necessarily know before you start the case how far the tumor is going to track and whether you're going to need to stop Mohs and get additional exposure and bring a patient to the OR. Our next communication is increased incidence of melanoma in patients with multiple myeloma, a cross-sectional analysis of the surveillance, epidemiology, and end results database by first author Partik Singh and senior author Sharif Ibrahim. Previous analysis has shown an association between multiple myeloma and both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers, although this trend has not been consistently demonstrated in melanoma. Therefore, the authors performed a SEER review of data from 2000 to 2018 to determine whether patients with multiple myeloma were at an increased risk of developing melanoma. Anatomic location and Breslow depth were compared for melanoma patients with and without multiple myeloma. Of the 79,174 patients with multiple myeloma, 261 patients developed at least one melanoma. In patients with multiple myeloma developing melanoma, overall mortality was higher than in all patients with melanoma, although melanoma-specific mortality was similar. Patients with multiple myeloma 
and a melanoma displayed higher incidence of trunk slash extremity tumors when compared with all patients who develop melanoma. Patients with multiple myeloma presented with thicker melanomas with 23.5% of melanomas having a Breslow thickness 0.1 millimeters versus 16.2% for all melanomas. Multiple myeloma was an independent predictor of all-cause mortality, but not melanoma-specific mortality. Dr. Lawrence, what do you take from this communication, and is this going to affect the way you approach melanomas in patients with multiple myeloma? So um, my general sense was that this group, although it had a slightly increased risk of melanoma, it wasn't significantly greater than the than the general population. And I guess my gut sense is that patients who have a serious disease like multiple melanoma are often later to report a skin cancer because of other uh, morbidity uh, associated with their primary disease. The following communication is processing sections in Mohs micrographic surgery too big to fit on a single conventional microscopic slide by first author Sergei Arutinin and senior author Eli Salibi. In this communication, the authors described the use of large glass slides measuring two by three inches for tissue specimens too large to process on a standard slide in order to avoid tissue sectioning. They also offer several modifications to minimize potential artifacts when processing larger specimens. We recommend that listeners refer to the article for specific detailed recommendations. The next communication is microscopic use in Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a survey of current and former Mohs Surgery Fellowship Directors by first author Elizabeth Sutton and senior author William Henke. The authors of this communication surveyed current and former micrographic surgery and dermatologic oncology program directors regarding the microscopes used in their practices. Of the 37 responses, 59.4% of respondents used an Olympus microscope. The other microscope brands included Nikon, Zeiss, and Leica. Regarding the power of objective lenses, the majority who responded used 10x objective lenses at 94.6%. For additional details about microscope trends in dermatologic surgery, please refer to the article. The next article is a brief communication by Wallace and Zatelli in response to an article in Derm Search Journal, issue 48, on evaluation of intraoperative tramcellone injection or primary lobe tacking pexing sutures for preventing pincushioning in bilobe transposition flaps. They give five tips. Number one, simply attention to deep suture placement. Number two, minding the skin mismatch between thin dorsal nasal skin and thicker tip skin. Number three, wide undermining. Number four, thinning of the subcutaneous muscle and and tissue at the point of rotation. And finally, they agree that pexing sutures are valuable. Why does this keep... features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. Our next communication is video recording of surgical techniques and considerations for educational content. First author, Justin Leitenberger, and senior author, Melissa Shive. I really enjoyed this communication as there is a detailed 20-minute video and a QR code in figure three so that you can watch the setup of the video recording and details on how to get the best angles and the best video. Also in table one, it goes through the nine steps that they recommend to optimize your video experience. Next, we'll be discussing the original article, The Progressive Loss Risk Scale for Hair Restoration Surgery by Dalby Stowe. 
Here, the author sought to describe a classification system that can be used as a communication tool between physicians and patients to define the long-term risks involved with hair restoration surgery. He emphasizes the importance of this topic, stating that because pattern baldness is progressive, an experienced surgeon with meticulous technique can often obtain outstanding results that may or may not withstand the progressive nature of hair loss. This often results in multiple procedures over a lifetime and donor area depletion. The author then goes on to describe the history of methods used to predict male pattern alopecia as well as previous treatments for this condition. He then introduces the PL risk scale as a way to quantify those extremely suitable and those who should be rejected for hair transplantation based on the progressive nature of pattern loss. There are five categories that comprise this PL risk scale each patient can be assigned a risk level based on how future hair loss may affect the overall cosmetic result of hair their hair transplant. The PL risk factors um, that are considered include donor density, donor hair caliber, classification of baldness, and other mitigating factors, and these can be found in Table 2. Dr. Lawrence, what were your thoughts on this article? Well, I think... Um, like most germs, I don't do hair transplants, but with follicular unit extraction, they're becoming increasingly popular. And the cosmesis has become so much better. Um, and certainly, uh, if cloning follicles is in our near future, the interest may become even more widespread. I guess I got from the classification system that the largest group uh, that is seen by hair transplant surgeons are in this class three. They range from 20 to 60, and they're going to require multiple procedures. Um, and then class four are those very young patients with extensive hair loss that might need to be counseled at their original consultation about the possibility of also using body hair um, in, their in their final transplants. So the takeaway for me is that anyone can be either a good or a bad candidate based on their expectations and the finiteness and quality of their donor area. And in essence, as with any surgical procedure, we must be transparent about the pros and cons of the long-term results to manage long-term expectations and to optimize both the result and patient satisfaction. Moving into more of the cosmetic original investigations, we have frontotemporal triangle area hair for eyebrow restoration in Asians, a comparative study with periauricular and occipital hair by first author Kai Tao Li and Yong Miao. This was another study on hair restoration, and the authors opened the article by emphasizing the psychological burden of eyebrow hypotrichosis and discussing the optimal technique for restoration. The eyebrow hair consists of one hair follicular units, which are normally thinner than those in the scalp hair of Asian individuals. While the periauricular and occipital area, or POA, is the more common donor site for hair restoration, the thicker hair can lead to a stiff eyebrow margin and unnatural appearance. The frontal temporal triangle area, or FTTA, contains thinner hair and a high percentage of one hair follicular units, making it a more suitable donor site for eyebrow reconstruction. Therefore, the authors performed the study to compare the cosmetic outcomes between FTTA and POA hair grafts and eyebrow restoration in order to reveal the advantages and disadvantages of using the FTTA hair. A retrospective analysis of 155 patients with FTTA or POA hair transplants was performed. A total of 84 patients underwent transplantation with donor grafts from the FTTA, while 71 patients had grafts from the POA. There was a significant difference in hair density, diameter, and percentage of one hair follicular units between the FTTA and POA hair transplants in favor of the FTTA group. The FTTA hair grew significantly slower than the POA hair did, and the percentage of patients who were very satisfied with the surgery results was higher in the FTTA group. The primary downside with the FTTA donor site, though, was longer harvesting time compared to the POA. Dr. Lawrence, what were some of your takeaway points from this article? So, 
I feel like with follicular unit extraction, we have a way of removing hairs in which the scar is negligible and it's going to allow us to really expand our idea of where we could be harvesting hairs from frontal hairline to possibly in those who have donor body hair, upper chest and upper back. Uh, so it's quite interesting and the idea to sort of match the caliber of hair to what you're looking for, whether it be hairline or eyebrow, seems to optimize the procedure. So continuing our theme of treatments for alopecia, we have another original investigation, photobiomodulation therapy with different wave bands for hair loss, a systematic review and meta-analysis by first author Yehu Zhang and Kuping Zhang. Photobiomodulation is a therapy that can purportedly promote hair regeneration by enhancing the production of adenosine triphosphate and inhibiting inflammation as well as increasing blood circulation and increasing expression of growth factors. In order to summarize the results of previous scattered studies and provide a more comprehensive evaluation for the efficacy of photobiomodulation therapy in the treatment of hair loss, the authors performed a systematic review of self-controlled studies and randomized controlled trials. 36 studies with 966 patients were included. Meta-analyses with different indices were performed separately on four groups of studies to test the effectiveness of the following hair loss treatments. Ultraviolet light for alopecia areata, red light for androgenetic alopecia, infrared light for AA, and infrared light for androgenetic alopecia. All meta-analyses showed that treatments were superior to controls. So based on this data, Dr. Lawrence, how are you going to integrate photobiomodulation into your treatment algorithm for alopecia? Well, we do have excellent medical therapy, as well as injectable PRP and hair transplants, which all work quite well for androgenetic alopecia. But of course, a device with no downtime would be wonderful. Um, unfortunately, I'm not very familiar with these devices, so I would have to see convincing before and after photos, as well as comparative trials, to be interested in uh, investing in this technology. Our next cosmetic article is the original investigation, Age-Related Changes in Facial Soft Tissue of Han Chinese, a computed tomographic study by Dawei Wang and Yiping Wu. This study aimed to reveal the age-related changes in full facial soft tissue of Han Chinese by using computed tomography. Measurements were performed on head CT images of 200 Han Chinese subjects, 100 men and 100 women. Patients were divided into two groups according to age, younger group aged 20 to 35, 50 men and 50 women in this group, and the older group aged 65 to 80 years, again, 50 men and 50 women. The measurements of facial soft tissue thickness were performed with 20 anthropological landmarks of the skull, including 10 midline points and 10 bilateral points. The authors found that the thickness at the rhinian was increased, whereas the thickness at the midfiltrum, supradental, and infradental was decreased, indicating the significant differences in both sexes. The thickness at glabella, nasion, supramental, and menten was decreased significantly in women. The thickness at supraorbital and the lateral orbit was increased with aging in either sex. The thickness at the frontal eminence, infraorbital, supraglenoid, and gonion showed significant age-related increases in women, and the thickness at the zygomatic arch, supra-M2, and infra-M2 was significantly decreased in men. This is a rather information-dense article, and I would encourage the listeners to take a look at figure three for a pictorial representation of the information I just presented. Dr. Lawrence, what were some of your takeaways from this article? I think we all know there are changes in facial proportions as people age, and that these correlate both to bone loss and soft tissue loss. These authors do a nice job looking at exact measurements in the soft tissue that contribute to the appearance of the aged face. There are some differences between men and women, as you might expect, and in the conclusion, they also point out that there are probably some significant differences, both ethnically and individually. 
I have always been fascinated by people who seem more youthful, not just because of the texture and quality of their skin, but because of their facial proportions. In the conclusion, they allude to a future study in which it, they look at changes within individuals, which would be quite interesting. Next, we have the original article, Chin Augmentation with Hyaluronic Acid and Injection Techniques Based on Anatomical Morphology by first author Bo Chen and senior author Jingyi Wen. In this article, the authors describe their inject injection technique according to the anatomical morphology of the tin, the chin, excuse me, with hyaluronic acid for chin augmentation and explore the clinical and aesthetic effects of this novel approach. In short, their augment augmentation technique is performed by placing depots of a highly elastic hyaluronic acid in the supraperiosteal plane at the perigonian and the pagonian with a sharp 27 gauge needle, followed by injection into the subcutaneous plane in the rhombic area with a blunt tipped 25 gauge three centimeter cannula. For individuals with a pregial sulcus or labiomandibular grooves, a hyaluronic acid with high elasticity was injected into the subcutaneous plane through a blunt tip 25 gauge five centimeter cannula from the same entry point as the first injection step at the Paragonian. A detailed description of their injection technique can be found in the methods section of the article. The authors then performed a retrospective review of 326 patients 298 females and 28 males who received this chin augmentation over a three and a half year period. The median injected volume was 1.85 milliliters, ranging from one to three milliliters. The shape and contour of the chin was significantly improved in all patients immediately after injection. At the six month follow-up, most of the improvements were retained and partial improvements remained visible at 12 months. Swelling and pain were the most common side effects occurring in 87.1% of patients. All patients reported satisfaction with the results of the hyaluronic injection treatment. My only limitation I thought with this article was that they didn't really objectively assess the patient satisfaction. This was just that what they reported at their follow-up visits. Dr. Lawrence, how would you integrate this information into your workflows? Well, I think chin augmentation is not a common patient request in the United States, but certainly the projection of the chin plays a role in desirable facial proportions. And I thought this article gives a reasonable algorithm for treatment of the chin area. Next, we have review of delayed reactions to 15 hyaluronic acid fillers by first author Ryan Kokoska and senior author Melanie Kingsley. This review article highlighted the differences between 15 hyaluronic acid filler products with a focus on delayed onset reactions, prevalence, prevention, and treatment. The literature review was performed for delayed onset reactions following hyaluronic acid dermal filler injection using a PubMed and Embase. Articles were included based on relevance, quality, and then the predetermined definition of delayed onset reaction, which they defined as greater than 30 days post-injection. A total of 13,136 subjects from 28 studies were included in the analysis. VYC-15L dermal filler injections, also known as Vibella, carried the highest risk of delayed onset reactions with a mean incidence of 3.83%, followed by VYC-20L, also called Voluma, at 0.92%, and finally VYC-17.5, also known as Volift, at 0.88%. The other 12 fillers had an incidence of 0%. What were your takeaways here? Although the incidence of delayed filler reaction is quite low, this systematic review reinforces that highly cross-linked fillers with the Vicross technology have a much greater incidence of delayed reactions. The final original investigation in this month's issue was complications with non-invasive fat and cellulite reduction devices, a cross-sectional analysis of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration Manufacturer and User Facility Device Experience Database by first author Adam Wolkan and senior author Matthew Avram. Given the rapid growth in the non-invasive fat and cellulite reduction market, it is essential that phys physicians be aware of associated adverse events. 
In this study, the authors searched the MOD electronic database on the FDA website uh, for reported complications of non-invasive fat and cellulite reduction devices from January 1st, 2014 to January 1st, 2020. The search yielded 165 medical device reports, also known as MDRs, the majority submitted by patients. The non-invasive fat removal device with the greatest number of MDRs was cryolipolysis with 68. Paradoxical adipose hyperplasia and hernia were the most common complications. There were 34 MDRs reported on the 1060 nanometer laser lipolysis. Nodules and burn slash blisters were the most common complications for this modality. Burn and blister were the most common complication associated with the 19 MDRs reported on high-intensity focused ultrasound, and the 10 MDRs reported on vacuum-assisted subcision were most commonly for scarring, dermal protrusions slash anidoderma, or firm nodules. Other treatments with fewer MDRs included the 1440 nanometer laser-assisted subcision, monopolar radiofrequency, focused ultrasound, and for a combination infrared light, bipolar radiofrequency energy, massage, and gentle suction treatment. In the discussion, the authors then compare the results to other recent literature. This was a nice resource to educate physicians on adverse events that can occur with devices used in the field of aesthetic medicine. Dr. Lawrence, any takeaway points from this article? Well, databases of complications are notoriously underutilized, and yet when done correctly, they can certainly improve quality of care. I think in the ideal setting, complications would be mandatory to report to a centralized database in which there was a guarantee of no consequence. This MOD FDA database is underutilized, but it gives us some idea of the complications. Next, we have radiofrequency epilation using acupuncture needles to decrease the disease burden in hydradenitis superativa by first author Nikol Mehta and senior author Samesh Gupta. In this article, the authors propose using stainless steel acupuncture needles with a radiofrequency energy device for a fast, cost-effective, easy-to-learn, permanent hair follicle removal at hydradenitis sites. In the axilla of a patient with multiple abscesses, nodules, and sinuses, multiple 0.25 millimeter thick needles were inserted through the hair follicle opening along the hair shaft to the level of the hair bulb. The head of these needles was then touched rapidly with a radio frequency electrode using low power at 5 to 10 watts in monopolar coagulation mode. This burns the hair bulbs, which are then easily extracted. With this method, more than 90% of axillary hairs can be removed in a single session. In a case presented by the authors, the HS lesions healed in one month after the procedure. There was no recurrence in the operated area at four-month follow-up, and the patient did not require treatment with antibiotics during this interval. Too often, I see HS patients with rather advanced disease where no one has discussed hair removal. I think this article can serve as a reminder to all of us that hair removal is important in the treatment of these patients as it removes the primary inciting lesion, the hair follicle. Next, we have a response to the previously published article, Comparison of Long-Term Effectiveness and Safety of Microwave and Surgery in the Treatment of Axillary Osmodrosis, a Single-Center Retrospective Study. This communication or response was written by Wen Sao Ho, and in the text, he advocates still for the surgical treatment of osmodrosis, stating that it is still far more effective than microwave treatment at a rate of over 90% compared to just 35% with microwave treatment. He says that microwave treatment is a good alternative to surgery in patients who are seeking a less invasive modality. In the communication, how we do it, Eyelash implantation using a triangular suture needle by first author Yi Wu and senior author Zai Zhu Song. The authors aim to introduce and describe a novel method to implant transplanted hair follicles into recipient eyelids using a triangular suture needle. Eyelash transplantation was performed in 28 patients with segmental vitiligo-associated eyelash leukotrichia at a Chinese hospital between September 2019 and August 2021. 
All diseased eyelashes were destroyed using a trichiasis electrolyzer and removed with forceps. The hair behind the ear was then trimmed to two to three centimeters and hair follicles from this area were acquired by follicular unit extraction and used for transplantation. Detailed steps of the procedure are described in the methods section and there is a supplemental video available as well. Follicular recipient sites returned to normal with no evidence of local hematoma or infection in any of the patients within seven days of surgery. Transient hair loss did occur within 30 days of surgery, but began to regrow after two to three months. Within six months, the transplanted hair had a natural shape and a high survival rate. No obvious scarring or trichiasis was observed. Finally, we have aesthetic medicine in older patients, an important demographic group by first author Alice Huang and senior author Jason Rivers. This was a survey study of 41 women and four men 65 years of age or older to assess motivations for pursuing a minimally invasive cosmetic procedure. 84% were motivated to pursue minimally invasive procedures because of intrinsic reasons, such as wanting to improve their appearance or self-esteem, over external reasons, such as others' opinions or notable events. The most commonly utilized procedures included dermal fillers, intramuscular neurotoxins, monopolar radiofrequency, fractionated non-ablative laser, intense pulse light, and vascular laser. Dr. Lawrence, what were your takeaways from this final communication? So though this is a quite small survey study, I feel that the findings are congruent with my patients in this age group. Uh, they often are highly satisfied with their minimally invasive procedures, they are intrinsically motivated and realistic about the results that we can obtain rather than seeking to look younger, they simply seek to look their best. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.